everyone, and welcome to Utility Safety In-Depth, where we take a deeper dive into topics recently covered in Incident Prevention Magazine. I'm Kate Wade, the editor of Incident Prevention and your host for this podcast. In this episode, we sit down with Mike Sterner, who wrote the article titled, Key Illness and Injury Prevention, Past, Present, and Future, for the April-May issue of Incident Prevention. Mike currently serves as the Director of Outside Line Safety for the National Electrical Contractors Association, also known as NECA. He is an OSHA-authorized outreach trainer with 29 years of operational and safety management experience in the electric utility field, including time with investor-owned utilities and electrical contractors before joining NECA. Welcome to the podcast, Mike. Thanks, Kate. I'm glad to be here. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing great. Uh, you know, it's funny that we're talking about uh, heat illness when we're having such chilly weather here on the East Coast, but uh, it'll be here before you know it. I know. We just had snow uh, earlier this week, so I, I know what you're feeling. Um, <laughs> but let's let's jump right into this because it is such a seasonal topic, um, especially as we as we head towards summer. Um, so you begin your article with discussion about OSHA's advance notice of proposed rulemaking for heat injury and illness prevention. Uh, which was published in the Federal Register in late October. And you said that historically OSHA has chosen to address heat illness and injury prevention through education and the general duty clause. So can you give me and our listeners some context for the advance notice? Like what's been happening in industry that's called for rulemaking on this topic? Yeah, that's the, that's the big question. And I, I think a lot, of, a lot of different things are happening at the same time. I think the backdrop is that we have this environmental hazard that we've that we've dealt with over the years as a society, and we kind of take it for granted. So I think there's a risk tolerance there, um, and we've kind of just always dealt with it through education and, and informally on the job site. Let's let's take it easy. It's going to be hot today. Let's drink lots of water. We'll take breaks when we need to. It's very informal. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're starting to see a lot more activity in the, at the state level. So you see state plans start, starting to adopt their own uh, regulations in this area. And I think from a federal perspective, OSHA, this is my opinion, you know, maybe sat back and said, well, it's such, there's so many geographical differences across the nation. And there's so many different industries. When you think about construction and general industry and maritime and agriculture, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of a big nut to crack. And so I think, you know, my, my guess is that the general duty clause is a great way to, to kind of look at our employers protecting our employees or doing everything they can. So it's more performance based. It just seemed to be, in my opinion, an easier way to manage the hazard. But there's some things happening that that you know, are bringing this up to the surface. So um, for the past 10 years, we've seen a, a pretty significant uptick in, in climate change. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're having hotter, uh, drier, uh, longer duration summers than we've seen in the past. And, you know, the science is clear that that is occurring. Um, and we're also seeing an increase in deaths on, on the job site. So I think, uh, you know, in the past 10 years, tw- 2018 and 2019 collectively were the highest, you know, the highest uh, fatality rates uh, for heat illness and injury uh, that we've seen. So it, it's certainly uh, certainly an uptick that, that we need to be aware of. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there's some research out there that's pretty undeniable. Uh, what's interesting is, you know, the National Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, the research arm um, of OSHA, you know, they've been working on uh, 
this criteria for a recommended standard for heat illness and injury prevention for years since the seventies. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there's been a couple of variations uh, over the years and updates and we're seeing, you know, different, a whole, uh, you know, a whole list of different research agencies coming up with sort of the same answers, you know, the same consistent approach to managing the hazard. You know, we saw with the military's done some research, you know, uh, the, ASSP is working on the, you know, the 810 standards where they're, they're looking at a heat stand. So everybody's kind of focusing on this thing and, and trying to figure out how to wrap their arms around it. So the time is right for at the federal level, I think, to put something in play. Uh, another thing here that's part of this story is the political environment. So the current administration has an executive order to all the different departments. Let's look at everything that we're doing and making sure we're looking at it from a lens of climate change, and, and helping to resolve some social, economic, or racial inequalities in everything that we do. So, you know, OSHA is no different. They're looking at the regulatory agenda and saying, okay, let's prioritize the things that are gonna have the biggest impact in those areas. So we're seeing that as well. There's been several petitions from the public over the years. So the public has beaten the drum as well. And in 2019, Congress uh, said, hey, listen, you gotta, you gotta, OSHA, we need you to take some kind of action here to protect workers because of what we're seeing. And uh, so right now, what we what we have is OSHA with, you know, with the National Emphasis Program out there, and we have the rulemaking that's underway. Uh, we have a lot of resources and a lot of effort going into dealing with this, this hazard. And there's this element that the, the part of it that's a little bit unwielding is the fact that there's some technical issues that you have to resolve. And you know some of those things are the heat stress thresholds. What's what's going to be the bar? What's you know what's the exposure limit? And how how are you going to acclimatize workers that you know travel from one part of the country to the next, or you know different construction areas, or new workers entering the workforce and never been exposed? How are, how are employers planning their their work and and, and their construction areas and, and, and job sites to where they're keeping uh, this injury prevention in mind? And medical monitoring, this, this concept that each individual has a contribution to this, this three-legged stool. If you think, you know, the individual contribution to the heat load, then you have the environmental contribution to the heat load, and then the effort that's being, you know, you know the work that's being performed, you add all those things together. And it's a complex recipe that has to be resolved by the employer. I noticed you mentioned acclimatization and making sure that um, we give people enough time to do that. So that sort of leads into my next question, and which is sort of about like human biology. Um, you know, working in high heat and humidity dates to the beginning of human history. This is not something new. Um, so a common question people have is, you know, why do we still see so many heat-related injuries and fatalities, if this is such a familiar problem. And in your article, you point to two issues, metabolic heat load and acclimatization. Can you describe both of these issues and their impact on the body's ability to properly regulate itself? Sure. You know, if you look at the, the, the whole list of things that we could do to prevent heat injury and illness, you know, some of the, some of the low-hanging fruit, of course, is rest, shade, hydration, and that kind of thing. But there's a couple things that I don't think people really fully understand how the human body reacts to heat and, and some of the limiting factors there to be successful in working with heat. And that's, that's this metabolic contribution. So each individual has their own uh, level of heat where it becomes dangerous for them. And, and 
you know, there's a whole list of things that affect that. Everything from, you know, your, your actual just general physical fitness, your age, you know, are you a smoker? Do you drink alcohol? Uh, do you have some sort of disease or something that, you know, is also causing you some problems? Do you take medication that reacts adversely to, you know, hot weather? Um, so, you know, there's this part that's, that gets very complex because if you're thinking about, okay, I have a new worker coming to work for my company, you know, and, and I'm required to do an assessment of this worker. So think in your mind sort of like respiratory protection, right? So, you know, you'll have, you have someone and they go and, you know, they, maybe they do a, a questionnaire and, 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 the, and the medical provider, you know, reviews that and says, well, this person sounds like they're okay, or this person might need to come see me and we'll do a little bit more detailed examination. It, this, this, this could go down that road where employers are having to pre-qualify their employees to work in the heat. And, and what kind of things, you know, what kind of control does the employer have over the, some of those personal risk factors? So that, that's something that's kind of like needs to be flushed out, I think. Uh, you know, there's recommended, depending on the research, depending on which way the regulation goes, there are different exposure limits based on, you know, that individual's personal risk factors factored in with the environmental heat load. And that sort of rings the bell when you need to start taking some additional precautions. So that could be very different for your entire workforce, depending on their personal risk factors. So that becomes sort of a hard thing to manage. Mm -hmm. um, your heart rate, your core body temperature and body water, body water loss are all things that you know, affect your ability to acclimatize. Um, and so those are all things that have to be evaluated by a medical professional. So that's pretty tough. Well, it is. And I, as far as I understand, it's, it's still unclear whether the forthcoming OSHA rulemaking is going to include a requirement for employer-managed medical evaluations and monitoring. So whether the rule ends up being prescriptive or performance-based, what kind of things should employers be thinking about now and doing uh, to keep their workers safe in high heat and humidity? Uh, I think there's a, there's a couple core things that an employer should have in place, right? And I think, you know, if you go out there and you canvas the industry, I think you'd see many employers have a, a heat and a cold stress type element to their program. Um, and if, you, if you're not working, if you're working in a state plan, uh, where there's already regulation on the books, it's pretty easy for you, right? You have a place to start. You probably already have a written plan, but that would be my first recommendation. Develop a plan. What's, what's your written plan on how you're going to protect your workers from the heat? Yeah, OSHA is still developing this regulation. And then if you're not working in a state where there's already prescriptions on how you do that, it's really up to the employer to decide how you're going to do that. And so here's a great opportunity for you to evaluate your program and say, okay, where, where are the gaps? So including water, rest, and shade. That's a very fundamental thing, right? Making sure there's water on a job site. It's cool drinking water. You know, that can be tough to manage in some remote locations, but do whatever you can to make sure the water that are drinking is helping to cool an employee down. Uh, building in rest, a rest schedule, you know, uh, routine breaks during the day, making sure employees know that they have the right to take breaks, uh, providing some level of shade that achieves the result. You don't just have shade to have shade. It's got to actually cool folks off. So depending on where you're at, you can imagine some urban settings, just the radiation radiation off the buildings creates yeah. heat. So you may be in the shade, but it's not really doing anything for you. So you have to really consider those things. You need to look at your work practices, how you do your work, and and look at you know what what activities do we perform that have elevated risk, and does that trigger some sort of action within your supervisor team to 
to make sure that you're, you know, you're monitoring and evaluating your workers. Training is a big part, making sure employees understand what the hazard is, some of the, you know, how your body responds to heat, some of the warning signs of heat exhaustion and heat stroke and all that kind of stuff. Making sure they understand what their rights are as far as being protected by, you know, rest, uh, rest shade and water uh, programs. And then, you know, monitor, have some method for monitoring what the actual heat is at the site. And that, that's another tough nut, right? Because, you know, we're talking about a you know, crew that's working maybe in a potential, potentially in a remote area or an area where they don't have good reception to have technology working on their behalf. Some of this test equipment, uh, wet globe bulb thermometers are very expensive um, relative to some of the, you know, you know, more basic temperature reading devices. So, um, but have some way on the site to manage, you know, to, to monitor what that heat level is and then, and then have your supervisors trained and being able to recognize the signs of heat stress and being able to act on that. Thank you for that. And I think you kind of answered um, my next question too, which is, you know, if an organization doesn't already have one and wants to create a program, what should the program include at a minimum? Um, and, you know, do like OSHA or any other agency or organization offer guidelines. Um, you mentioned what people need at a minimum. Um, I know OSHA does offer some stuff. You mentioned NIOSH before, um, what ASSP is doing. Are there any other organizations that you wanted to mention or does that kind of cover it? No, I think that's the good news here, Kate, is that OSHA has tons of resources. That's one thing that we can say is OSHA is not dragging her feet here. They're way out in front and giving us what we need. Um, so you can go to the OSHA webpage and they have working in outdoor and indoor heat environments. There's a whole, whole host of uh, resources available. The OSHA technical manual has an actual section and chapter related just to heat stress where they, you know, I think is a, is a very helpful tool for an employer if they want to build out sort of the framework of a program. They talk about some of the critical elements being the acclimatization program, the medical monitoring program, having a training program and a, and a heat alert program. So when we have high heat, elevated heat, emergency procedures and that kind of thing. So there's a lot of direction there. Uh, A10.50 is going to be, you know, the, the, the ASSP uh, standard for, for heat illness and injury prevention. So that's not out yet. We'll see where that's going. Uh, there's a tons of research or, uh, organizations, actually one that I like uh, as far as the, the, the white paper uh, that they wrote was the American Geophysical Union, AGU, has a, has a white paper on heat safety in the workplace, and it gives a lot of really good recommendations uh, for employers if they want to kind of be, you know, on, on the most protective end of the spectrum, and, and, but have it in a practical way, something you can put in your program is easy to do. I think that's a great white paper to read. Uh, the, Nat the National Integrated Heat Health Information System is a, is a network of governmental agencies. And I'll say that again, that's Nat Nation National Integrated Heat Health Information Systems, and the acronym is N-I-H-H-I-S. And if you go to that website, they have links to all the different governmental agencies that have some sort of information about heat illness. So you get CDC, you have uh, NIOSH, you have you know, OSHA stuff. It's all, it's all tied together there. So that's a great resource for that. And of course, we mentioned NIOSH, which is to me, is the most um, detailed and comprehensive research paper that you can get your hands on to really understand the problem. So if you really want to understand what this, this individual contribution is, physiological heat load 
issue is, if you want to understand how acclimatization works and the research that supports that, that's a great white paper as well. Um, well, so I think we've covered a lot of ground today, but before we close out this episode of the podcast, do you have any final thoughts that you want to share with our listeners? I just think that, you know, when th this could be uh, a tough nut to crack for folks, it could, it could fall anywhere within a spectrum from being very performance-based to being very prescribed in how you deal with the hazard. It's going to be important for us in the industry to be involved in that rulemaking process. So as much as you can to listen in on the hearings and provide public comments and really represent some of the challenges. One of the things I think that we have to really be able to articulate to OSHA is, you know, the way that we do our work and some of some of the uh, the controls that we may think is a good idea may actually introduce new risks. So, you know, one of the things that you hear is, well, just change your work schedules. And we know that, you know, working at night doing line work is, is you know, that, that's a problem, right? Because your ability to identify hazards is an issue. Uh, work zone protection is an issue. Some, some locales don't even let you work on the roads at certain times of the day and may not even let you get out there and work. So it's not as easy as that may sound in some cases. Uh, you know, fall protection issues when you're talking about somebody, maybe they're working on top of a tower, or, uh, a transmission structure, and you have regimented breaks. You have to take a break every 20 minutes or something like that. What, what risk does that introduce to a, to a worker that has to climb up and down the tower? You know, so there's all kinds of things that we have to be able to articulate to OSHA the unique aspects of our industry and that they, we make sure that they don't, we don't jump from the, the kettle into the fire kind of thing. Yeah. Well, thanks so much for your time today, Mike. Um, as a reminder to our listeners, Mike's article is now available in the April-May issue of Incident Prevention, which can be accessed online at incident-prevention.com. Until next time, stay safe and be well. The views, information, and opinions expressed during this podcast are solely those of the individuals involved and do not necessarily represent those of utility business media and its employees. It is strongly recommended that you discuss any actions or policy changes with your company management prior to implementation.